Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardena Osband, here with my friend in Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Rosh Hashanah, daf Lamed Hay, page 35. Well, we're on our last daf of Masachat Rosh Hashanah. Uh, we hope that we, uh, many of you joined us for our siyam. Uh, you might be listening to this before or afterwards. Uh, tomorrow we'll be starting Masachat Tanit, which we just want to make a little plug for. is a great Masachat. Um, and if you have friends or family who are thinking about starting the daf, this is a great daf to start with. Um, and this is actually a pretty short daf to end the Masachat on. So I think Anne and I are just going to spend a big chunk of today really just reading the daf. Uh, I'm going to start and really start sort of in the middle of a discussion about the Smachlokas between Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Meir about whether or not uh, the Shliach Tzibor sort of fulfills the obligation of uh, of everybody who's listening to the Shliach Tzibor or not. And it's in sort of at the top of the page to Tanya, they, they have a brace here which says, Brachot shel Rosh Hashanah v'shel Yom HaKippurim, right? The blessings of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Shliach Tzibor motzi harabim yidei chovatan. The Shliach Tzibor actually fulfills the obligation of, of, of the people, right? That if you, as an individual, didn't say it, you could be Yotze having said Mustaf with the Shliach Tzibor. Divrei Rabbi Meir, that's what Rabbi Meir says. And just as the Chachamim say, though, that just as the Shliach Tzibor is actually a Chayav to say, the Mustaf to say these prayers, so too every individual is as well. So what this price is basically showing us based on a, a discussion that started, you know, on yesterday's staff, that Rabbi Meir agrees with Rabbi Gamliel when it comes to the brachot of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Chachamim disagree with this. And so then the Gemara asks, Maishna Hachi, what's different here about the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that, Rab, that uh, Rabbi Meir basically agrees with the opinion of Rabbi Gamliel, um, but not about the the other you know tefillot of the year, il um mishum kare right. So if we say that it's because of the many psukim that are here, right? right. And so didn't Rav Hanana say in the name of Rav Kevan right? That once you have in the line of prayer, right, in your tefillot, and we know that the Musa for Yom Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, there's a lot of psukim there, right? So once you're saying, and that's a lot of the structure, it's like you'll say, this is the pasuk, and then you recite the pasuk, right? You don't need to actually say the verses themselves. Rather, right, we would say because there are many brachot in these. So in other words, the first answer that they want to give is, is that maybe this, according to Rabbi Hananel, that once you're reciting many psukim in a musaf, and we know there's a lot of musaf here, um, you know, that maybe you don't need to say the pasuk itself so the shliach tzibur could say it, right? And then the Gemara says, no, it's really because these are just very, very long brachot. They're very long musafs. And that's why Rabbi Meir agrees with Rabbi Gamliel here. It, it just would be impossible for people to know this by heart. And I think this is an interesting comment here because obviously this is a time of tefillah where, first of all, the text wasn't always so set. Second of all, there wasn't printing press. It's not like everybody came to shul with their own machzer. And so I think there's a concern here that maybe only the shliach tzibur, there might only be one person who really would be able to say these tefillot accurately, but to put that on everybody else just wouldn't really seem to be possible. All right, then the Gemara wants to go back to Rav Hananel. Gufa, right? I'm a Rav Hananel, I'm a Rav. Right, so they're going back to the statement. So now the Gemara wants to explain this. What this means exactly? 
Sabarmine, right? They initially thought because of this statement, that this only applies to an individual who's praying for himself. So in other words, if you're praying for yourself and you say Musaf and let's say, I don't know, you somehow didn't remember the Sukim correctly, that would be okay. About Bitsibor low. But when we're talking about the Shliach Tibor, we're talking about a whole congregation praying, right? That doesn't apply. The Shliach Tibor would have to say all the Pesukim correctly. Itmar, right? But it was said, Amar Rav Yeshua ben Levi, Echad Yachid, Echad Tibor, right? Whether it's an individual, whether it's the congregation, Kevin Amar Obedar Techa Katub Leimor, Shuv Enot Sarich, right? That once we have this concept of, and in your Torah it's written, Actually, nobody has to say the actual verses itself. Now, I, I found this whole, you know, passage to be somewhat puzzling, but I think what this somewhat speaks to is, is that these prayers were said before there was printed press. You really had to memorize these things. I mean, think about how complicated it would be to memorize the entire Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, right? Like that would be very, very hard to do. So I'm sure there might've been some written copies but it's not like everybody had their own sitter or machzor that they were bringing to shul. And so I think this leniency ultimately is somewhat practical. Like, I don't know that there could have been an expectation that everybody, shliach, tzibor, or yachid, could have all of these things, particularly the psukim, memorized in a way uh, when they needed to daven. Right. I think, that's, I think that the fact that they didn't have sidurim also was probably very, had a real impact on their experience. Think about it, if you had Rosh Hashanah, maybe it was only one day of Rosh Hashanah, right? Meaning, uh, before, you know, I know that we have two days for a very, very long time, but let's just say for the sake of argument, and then you have, you have to have this memorized, and then you're going to say it again the next year, but not until then? It's a really different way of thinking about tefillah. Um, and the rest of the daf continues in this vein, a really different way of thinking about tefillah. So Rebelazar says that you should always arrange your prayer in your mind and only afterwards pray. So this makes sense, right? If you don't have a sidor in front of you and you, you know, you're going to go pray, so make sure that you know what you're going to say. Don't just kind of like ramble on, although some of us might do that. But the, the idea here is that you, you fix in your mind what it is that you want to be talking about, what you want to be praying about, and only then begin your actual prayer. I'm a Rabbi Abba. So Rabbi Abba says that Rabbi Lazar's statement about this, you know, plan your prayer, fix your prayer in your mind before you actually start praying, makes sense specifically when you're talking about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, as, your day, as you've just outlined. Um, and also for other tefillot that are prayed, you know, um, let's call it, you know, infrequently over the course of the year, Shall prakim, which means like here and there, right? Like intermittently. However, if you're talking about the things that you, the brachel, whatever that you say all year long, then you don't, he says, you don't have to do that. I mean, you don't have to take that pause and plan out your prayer before you begin to pray, which I think is a really interesting position when we know that elsewhere in Shas, we saw it in brachot, there was a good amount of attention paid to like preparing yourself for the prayer in advance of the prayer. So when Rabbi Abba says, no, but you don't have to do that, I wonder if it wasn't a matter of concern um, that it would become too onerous if you have to, you know, organize yourself before your prayer every single time you come to say any kind of blessing, then I think it becomes, it, it might be great Havana, but I feel like people might not really engage to the same degree. So the Gemara asks on this, it says, Eni, 
Is it so? Is it so that, and then it gives us an example about Rev Yehuda. So I want to take a sidestep and do a little who's who on Rev Yehuda. This is Rev Yehuda Bar Yechezkel. He's um, a second generation Amora. He studied under both Rav and Shmuel. And eventually he himself came to be the head of the Naharda um, Yeshiva under Shmuel. Um, well, after Shmuel died. Um, and then he's the one who moved it to Pompadita. So, and then it, you know, lived in Pompadita for a very long time, Yeshiva, for over 700 years. So he he was instrumental in the, you know, in rabbinic Judaism, in the, in the learning of the Beit Midrash, and in his role in the Talmud is really, you know, quite strong. So we also know that in addition to this kind of scholarship, Rabbi Yehuda was also known to be very pious, which is going to be particularly interesting in the next line of this Gemara, where it says as follows. Um, right, it asks the question, what about Rabbi Yehuda? Did Rabbi Yehuda really do this kind of fixing? Did he really fix the prayer in his mind and only then pray? Shani Rabbi Yehuda. So the Gemara says, no, he was different. Kevan de mitlatin yomin litlatin yomin havamatli keprakim dami. So this is Rabbi Yehuda. So I thought it was going to say, Rabbi Yehuda didn't need this because he davened so all the time. He never needed, even for Rosh Hashanah, he didn't need to to fix it in his mind, right? But that's not what it says. Meaning that's what, that was my preliminary thought as I was preparing. What it says is the Rabbi Yehuda was different because he only davened once every 30 days. And the rest of the time he's busy learning. So each of his tefillot were really like um, prakim, right? That they were intermittent prayers. So then he would stop and prepare himself and organize his prayer before he went to pray. But the reason he would do that is because he didn't pray very often. Now, I find this to be, you know, nowadays I think we would whitewash this. You know, the, <coughs> excuse me, the G'daylem biography of Rabbi Huda would not mention this fact because how could it be that one of these greats didn't daven three times a day, like really the way that you're supposed to do it? And I think this speaks to the fact that when we've mentioned this before, that the entirety of tefillah was much more fluid than it is now. You know, there wasn't a fixed text or where there were fixed texts throughout, but not to the same degree of a fixed sidur that came up, you know, a few hundred years after that. Amar of Achabar Avira, Amar Rabbi Shimon Chasida, Poter Hayar Rabban Gamliel, Afil Im Shebesadot. Velomi Bae, Hadi, I'll hang on to that question. So, Rav Achabar Avira said that Rabbi Shimon Chasida said that Rabbi Gamliel would say, would allow um, the Shlich Tzibor to, um, to exempt the people who were in the fields. Meaning if you're out of the fields, so then presumably you didn't really have to, like what, come back and daven in the same way. Um, it's a little bit, it's not exactly clear what this exemption is, right? The, the commentaries kind of jump all over themselves to figure it out. Um, and it's not clear what, it's, why is he exempting them and what is he exempting them from is a tricky thing here, just because the words are not there. So, um, but what we know is that the there's an objection to it, right? So the Gemara comes back and says, meaning he's exempting those who are here in the city. One second, let me just say this right. Even those who are in the fields could be exempted, which then suggests that a shliach tzibor, if he's exempting the people who are in the fields, then all the more so he's exempting the people who are here in the city, but happen not to be 
at tefillah at that moment. So again, this seems to speak to the question of exactly what was the practice in that time. And I would say that I, I'm I'm reluctant to to pass to keep going from this passage when I don't fully have a handle on it. But I feel like I'm in good company because the Rishonim struggled with it as well. Yordana, do you have something to add here before I finish up? No, no, no. Go ahead. Finish up. I'll say something at the end. Okay. Um, so Adraba, the Gemara then is going to raise a question on exactly this passage, right? So this is this is one of the ways to figure out what is the Gemara really talking about. If you don't understand the first statement, but you understand the question, then it sheds light on the statement. So the Gemara then questions the conclusion that Rabbi Gamliel was able to exempt the people who were in the city but didn't show up to shul. Adraba, the Gemara says, you know, come on. It's much more reasonable to think the opposite. Hani anisi, hani lo anise. I'm sorry, anise. Anise meaning like, like technically, sometimes we translate to mean force, but it means you know where your circumstances where you're beyond your control. So the people who are out in the fields who didn't come to shul because they're too far away and it's too onerous to be able to come back and forth and so on. So then let them fulfill their obligation through the through the shliach tzibur. So now we understand what Rabbi Gamliel is talking about, right? The idea that somebody could be yotze, nowadays we would say yotze, that they would exempt the people in the fields from their obligation, it makes sense to say that if they're out in the fields. It does not make sense, the Gemara contends, to, that he can exempt the people from their obligation when they're in the city, but they just simply didn't come to shul. They're close enough, they didn't bother. right? Now, plenty of people don't necessarily make it to shul. It's interesting, again, here the idea is you need that shliach tibor to be yotzeyu to 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 help the people who are not there fulfill their obligation. Nobody says at this point anyway. Nobody says, "Well, let them dive on their own out in the field." Right? The concern is, will it work for the shliach tibor to in fact help them fulfill their obligation? Um, okay. And then the gemara goes on to Tani Abba Brid Bidyamin Barchia Am Shachorai Sha. So what happens here? We've got a new Brita, which is an interesting place to introduce a new Brita. We're at the very, very end of the daf. We've got a whole bunch of people standing in shul, and they're standing behind the Kohanim. And then it comes time to birkat, for Birkat Kohanim. So that they are, now the people who are coming to say Birkat Kohanim have their backs to this, this clump of people who are standing behind them. Right? They're turned to face the kahal, to face the entire room, except for that there's other people behind them. So those people are not included in the blessing. Okay? Now, so the Gemara, the point here is they're not they're not included in the blessing. Get yourself to the other side of the Kohanim. What's the big deal? Meaning you're supposed to make at least some measure of effort to do so. So I will note that um, you know. For, for many people, I think this was an entirely plausible, possible thing to do, certainly if you're on the men's side of the mechitza. But I can tell you that once upon a time, the shtiblach in Jerusalem, they have since um, revamped the physical structure of it. But there was a time where there's the shtiblach is really four different shuls, four different synagogues in one building in Katamon, and it's a minion factory. It's a, around the clock. They, they have minyanim starting whenever people show up, and then they just keep going the whole day long. And one of those physic the one of those shuls, the physical structure of it was such that the women's section was behind the Aaron Kodesh. And so the Kohanim stand with their backs to the Aaron Kodesh facing the room of the men who are praying. And the women are behind that. So fundamentally the women are excluded from the bracha of the Birka Kohanim. 
And they can't do anything about it. Meaning they can't step out and go to the other side because there's nowhere for them to go. It doesn't work, which is, I believe it was rectified in the next, um, after they did renovations. Okay, so rather we're going to come to understand Rabbi Gamliel's statement a little bit differently. He only exempted those who were out in the fields. So the Gemara then is reread in light of that Breita, which says specifically, or in light of the logic rather, that says specifically, Rabbi Gamliel exempted the people out in the fields that they could be Yotze with the Shlech Tzibor. He could fulfill their obligation of Tfilah because they can't, they can't come to Shul. They're out there in their work. The circumstances are indeed beyond their control. However, the people in the city who didn't come to the synagogue, they, you know, when they should have been able to, to do so, right? So then they are not exempted. And the presumption is here, at least, and I've got a footnote saying this anyway, that they, the people in the city, are able to, to stop and prepare their own tefillot for themselves. So at least in the footnote, it does suggest this idea. I don't see it in the text itself, right? The implication really should be, I think, that you don't get the exemption that the Shlech Tibor can um, can fulfill your obligation. You're in the city, get yourself to shul, and then daven with the entire kahal, uh, the entire congregation. And here we can say Hadran Alach Yom Tov. That's the chapter. We've completed here the chat, the Masachet to which we expect and hope to return. Your data over to you. Yeah, I, you know, I just think I'll make one comment that the way this Masachet ends, this whole idea that there's a group of people who sort of are exempt from prayer in a way, because we understand that they can't prepare themselves properly, just made me really rethink a little bit, you know, sort of the way we rush around like, oh, I'll squeeze in mincha, I'll this or that. And, you know, I think our relationship to prayer a little bit is somewhat like, I don't know, I'll, I'll admit for me, at least sometimes it's a little bit like checking off a box as opposed to devoting to it the time that it actually needs. So, you know, I don't know, this, this, this end here gave me some pause. But I feel like here it's not even checking off. I mean, it's checking off a box because somebody else did your job for you here for the people in the fields, right? Like they're not even, they don't have the agency, let's say, to do their own davening, which now down through the generations, you know, we there are many people who don't know how to pray, but we certainly say that everybody can pray. Pray in whatever language you want, speak to God, you know, use the door, don't use the door. I feel like we have a more personal, more democratic approach to prayer than they do at this time. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. This is a great time. Tomorrow, we're going to be starting a Sechah Tanit. If you have friends who you think would be interested in joining the Talking Talmud family, let them know about this podcast. Tanit is a great Sechah to get started uh, with your Gemara learning. And until tomorrow, go and learn.